Thank you very much. Um, and it's a real pleasure to be here today to, to uh, introduce the work to you. Thank you for coming along. Uh, and, and my thanks to Story Hall for hosting what I think is a stunning exhibition. Um, this piece um, is um, a, a piece I'm very proud of, and it's a piece that has um, been uh, quite significant in developing a, a new aspect of my own practice. Um, so again, I'm, I'm grateful for the Stony Rises project allowing that opportunity. Um, what I might do to begin with is to talk about um, what we're seeing um, and, and how the image was made, um, and then I'll talk about the ideas and content of the work um, after that. And if you do have questions at any time, please feel free to, to ask me. Um, so the image um, was made uh, in September 2009, and um, I walked around the perimeter of one of the great lakes of the Western Districts, uh, Lake Notuk. Uh, Lake Notuk um, is very famous in Australian art history. Uh, it's one of the um, most, uh, if you like, beautiful lakes of the, of the region, and it's one that uh, Eugene von Gerard, amongst others, painted uh, a number of times. So it's a significant lake. Um, it's also a nearly circular lake. Um, it, it's uh, a volcano crater, um, so it has an almost perfect circular uh, edge. Um, and one of the particular qualities of it is that it's um, sadly in the process of disappearing. Uh, over the last few hundred years, um, it's been losing more water through evaporation than it's been receiving from rainfall. And as it is essentially a closed system, uh, there's some flow through from a nearby lake, Bull and Mary, but it is almost a, a closed system, almost entirely dependent on, on rainwater uh, for its maintenance and due to what we believe is a drought, um, that's no longer the case. And I mention that because I'm curious about it being a sort of closed system, having again a sense of circularity in time uh, as well as in space. So I walked around the edge of this lake, uh, which is a six kilometer walk, and um, took um, digital still images every couple of hundred meters of the view across the lake. So I built up if you like, a profile of the circumference of this lake, a 360-degree panorama. And um, these images are then um, stitched together, if you like, in, in Photoshop, a um, very simple process. Um, so in sequence, they're, they're stitched together, and, and, um, and the images are then animated. Um, what I did, though, was to stitch the images together and then move that stitch sequence one frame at a time left to right to echo the direction of my walking and layer those images upon each other so if you look carefully you'll see that the image is actually scrolling from right to left um, and you're, you're seeing a fade of one scene into the next. So you are actually retracing my walk around the lake and also, in a sense, moving in time, um, having a sort of uh, after image or um, 
memory, um, fading memory of the image you've just seen. And I was very curious about trying to describe this sort of movement in spatial terms and also temporal terms um, through video. Um, it loops continuously. Uh, again, it is a 360-degree view, so it can go on endlessly if you keep walking around that circle. Obviously, the other feature of it is the symmetry, um, which is um, made uh, quite, quite simply by duplicating the image from the top half to the bottom half. And I might use that to start talking about the content of the work a little bit. Um, symmetry is a device that's commonly found um, in ideas of utopia or um, perfection. Um, uh, some of the earliest representations in Western painting by Piero della Francesca um, depict um, a perfect city, and the city is entirely symmetrical in his painting. Um, this is we think based on um, early descriptions of heaven uh, in the book of Revelation as being similarly a perfectly cuboid city, perfectly square, perfectly symmetrical with a single river running down the middle. Um, so these notions of idyllic places being symmetrical is uh, a trope in, in at least Western thinking. Um, it's also a device that's used to some degree um, in notions of the picturesque which is, um, again, a convention, um, particularly coming out of the um, 18th and 19th centuries uh, of Western landscape painting, where um, idyllic scenes were created by bringing together details from many different places. You may have um, a Grecian temple, uh, a Roman ruin, a German forest, and a Mediterranean sea all brought together in one painting as an idyllic scene and symmetry would be used perhaps not um, emphatically so the image wouldn't be perfectly symmetrical but there would be a sense of balance and proportion that was based on ideas of symmetry um, and again these were, these were to do with perfection, to do with idyllic places um, so this idea of sort of a synthetic landscape, of constructing a landscape, isn't new. <laughs> it's, it's an old trope, an old tradition, but it is perhaps something that digital technologies allow us to do in, in new ways um, and, and with new effects. Um, one of the things that I'm curious about with that idea of synthetic landscapes is that that's something we're surrounded with more and more today um, in advertising, in, in films, um, in, in consumer culture as a whole. Um, landscapes are idealized often to sell us something or to make us want to go there, um, exotic holiday destinations. Um, uh, some of you may be familiar with, um, I think it's the, the beer, uh, blonde, a blonde beer ad, and you have scenes of paradise and a pigeon flies into a van sort of thing. And, um, but but those, those notions of idyllic landscapes um, are, if you look at them carefully, they're very closely based on artists like Eugene von Gerard um, and, and other Western exponents of the picturesque, and they're heightened by new digital media technologies. Um, so I, I'm 
I'm quite self-conscious about um, the politics of constructing these synthetic landscapes. And the reason I'd like to draw our attention to that to some degree is the cost <laughs> of that consumption. Um, I think we're quite familiar now with consumer culture not being sustainable. Um, I know there's an election coming up and I don't want to turn into a political broadcast sort of thing, but um, you know, there are many models that suggest that we need um, several, <laughs> several Earths if we're going to sustain our present level of consumption. And um, um, the impact of that um, cost is registered in the western districts of Victoria. So again, I'm going in a circular walk here, but bear with me. <laughs> so um, one of the things, one of the reasons I wanted to use a lake um, was that um, the Western Districts are famous for their great lakes. Uh, there are many lakes in the region to do with the volcanic landscapes. They're incredibly beautiful. Um, the subjects of painters for hundreds of years. Um, they were the reason um, there were some some of the earliest sorry, some very early indigenous settlements uh, in, in the region were based on the watercourses and the um, fluid qualities of the landscape, um, the eel traps, etc., that other artists in the show have explored. Um, so the, the identity and the aesthetics of the Western Districts are founded on the water of the region. Um, however, it was incredibly moving and, uh, and distressing to visit the largest lake uh, in the region, Lake Karangimite, if, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, and to see this epic um, piece of water that's really an inland sea uh, that you know, was probably visible from space um, had disappeared. Uh, we walked across an ashen dust surface, um, much like the surface of the moon, um, where this once great lake had essentially, I think, almost entirely disappeared. Um, and the others are going, and, and Lake Notok is one of them. And it is debated, but this could well be because the, the cause of global warming. Um, and, and water, of course, is, is certainly an issue, even if it's not um, driven by global warming, it's an issue that is incredibly important for Australia. Um, we only have to think of the Murray-Darling Basin uh, as, as another example of the significance of this topic. So I wanted to try to bring together these various concerns and interests, um, a, a, an environmental concern, uh, particularly uh, in terms of water, um, an awareness of the history of this region, um, its, its art history, um, uh, and the role of the lakes as, as a subject for um, the paintings, some of the earliest uh, Australian paintings, landscape paintings were, were made in this area, and some of the lakes were the subjects of those. Um, and, and the history of that tradition and also, I suppose, the politics of that tradition, which are post-colonial in, in the final analysis. Um, so I suppose it's a lot to load into one work, and I, and I, I think the work can be read on many levels, and, and I, I think perhaps the catalogue helps to m take you through those different levels um, as you wish. Um, but, I, but I hope that the work at least makes you consider um, what it is to look at landscape, um, to think about the, the, if you like, the language of landscapes and the fact that that language is constructed by consumer culture that we're saturated with every day, um, which includes art history, uh, 
our own memories of landscapes and walking through landscapes um, and um, um, uh, our, 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 our landscapes we've grown up with. Um, that might be a point to, to finish my sort of introduction on. Um, I don't know if there are any questions or, or um, comments. Um, um, it's interesting that for a work that has brought to mind the problems of water, that is, it is such an idyllic, saturated green. And I know September is a spring rainfall time of year, and we've had more of that in the last little while. But um, yeah, I guess the vivid, almost Irish green um, is an interesting thing in the context of what you've just said about it in really evoking water as a problem. <laughs> um. Absolutely, thank you. The, the, there's there's a few little scatterings of yellow blossom on one of the hillsides, which is quite unusual. I know. <laughs> but, um, uh, I um, I was curious to see. You know, I, I I had a day to go arrange to be able to go there and do the walk, and I was curious. You know, was it going to be a blue sky day with fluffy white clouds, which would be absolutely of the picturesque trope? Uh, would it be a pouring with rain day? Um, which would have a whole other sort of discourse around it and would link to the discourse of water. Um, in all honesty, I think um, we might tweak the monitor a little <laughs> to play with the saturation of the green colour. Um, but um, it, it's a little greener than I remember, I, 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 I admit. Um, but... Um, But yeah, yeah, the saturation of the green is part of what can evoke a lot of thoughts about the work anyway. It just becomes perhaps a different work. I mean, it's quite beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I could, I'm English, and so I could go on about green fields yeah. and, and green landscapes um, extensively. And, and one of the curious things is the way the Western Districts is, or at times felt, Incredibly redolent of um, an English um, pastoral landscape and and that that tradition as well. Um, obviously, that's manifest in various ways. Um, the, the English settlers, the or European settlers, um, constructed the landscape in various ways to suggest that and planted trees, built buildings in in the European tradition, um, constructed the stone walls, um, which. Weren't to weren't weren't a picturesque device. They were for a very pragmatic reason, but they became picturesque. <laughs> um, and um, and so for me, you know, one of the curious things about the landscape to talk about its po post-colonial aspect is that it, it did sort of fold an Australian and a European identity into one. And I think that that's that's a very interesting Australian condition that the Western Districts explores very successfully. Mm. <laughs> um, so were you walking around the lake? These are still images, and this is a like a 360. Yeah. No? Yeah. Oh, okay. And have you manipulated the colour at all, out of interest? Not, 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 in, not in my editing. Um, mm. but, you know, digital colour is a whole topic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, I don't know if it's working. Sorry, sorry. Um, um, I, I think you know the 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 
the way technology reproduces color is 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 a subject for a talk on its own sort of thing and mm. and so it it is a little greener than i remember um i think it's i think it's probably the contrast has been set slightly on on the monitor um it would vary from monitor to monitor but um <clears throat> um it w- having said that, you know, I, I would defend the Western Districts as being lush, <laughs> and, and and you know, relatively speaking, um, you know, compared to other areas I've been through, um, and so this is one day. Is yeah, 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 continuous walk and a continuous series, and they they do. Yeah. It was uh, about twenty five, I think, from memory, twenty twenty five. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's, again, there are points when the image um, becomes smaller, and that's because you're looking across the longer width of the lake, so you're looking further away. So there is a sort of a sense of movement as it comes and goes away from you. Um, so I, I sort of wanted to try and immerse you into that landscape in, I guess, a very literal way, but mm-hmm. but to, to sort of lose a sense of direction um, and time. So so you're floating in in this space. Yeah. I just um, wondered if you could talk about the um, the kind of the time-based nature of it. Like it's got a certain kind of pace. Um, is that related to um, your kind of environmental concerns, or is it what's the connection there? Thank you. Yeah, great question. Um, and and um, obviously it's arbitrary on, on one level. That that what what I did want to get was. Um, Something that you know that, that was comparable to breathing or walking, um, you know, um, something that had the rhythm of some sort of, I suppose, biological process. Um, I, I was thinking about osmosis and you know all of these things, and so, so something that that um, related to the body, um, uh, you know, that that was my experience of the lake was through walking around it. Um, and that, that sort of fluid dynamic, osmosis being one of them, um, I, I wanted it to be dynamic and, and so for it to oscillate, fluctuate, pulse. Um, I think Ross Gibson's essay, you know, picks up on that really well as well, obviously. Um, I didn't want to sort of blind you with a whirling. <laughs> we, we would get seasick then to take the metaphor to it. <laughs> but um, um, I, I hope it does have a... And, and it's also interesting... Um, uh, from an optical point of view, how the eye deals with fades, you know, frames per second mm-hmm. and, that, and that sort of thing. Yeah. You know, um, so you, I, if I slow this down much more, you start, it starts to jerk, you know, it becomes quite lumpy. Um, so it's curious how the eye processes transitions, you know, um, and I wanted to get that edge where you do, it seems reasonably seamless. Um, on a technical side, how many photographs did you have to take to actually get this together? And also, what sort of equipment did you use for it? Okay. Um, it, it, it was... Um, I mean, I think I, I, I took multiple viewpoints at each position, um, but it, in the end... Uh, so there's probably about 100 images altogether, and then took that down to, I think it was about 20, 25 in the end. I forget the final count. Um, and, and different ways of stitching those together. Um, and it was with a, uh, um, a um, digital SLR camera and, and a tripod. Um, and um, it was... Uh, um, you know, the frame, the viewing frame, was, was something I had to sort of... Um, 
intuit as you walk around. I mean, I, each scene needs to overlap with the next to make it continuous. Um, but it's very hard to work out exactly where that is mathematically when you're in the middle of the landscape. So, um, um, at one point, I'd wanted to, to do this by swimming around the lake, do a circular swim. It would have been the, the truly sort of aquatic, logical sort of position. But um, uh, I'm, I wasn't that brave in the end. <laughs> so, next time. <laughs> uh, finally, uh, Kit, you went on um, a four-day artist camp um, as part of um, the uh, exhibition with the other artists, and that's where you put this together. Can you just sort of tell everyone briefly about that? Um, yeah, it, it was um, an incredibly um, rich and wonderful experience. Um, however, I, I mean, don't get the idea that we were there, you know, sketching en plein air, um, you know, breaking for uh, a bottle of wine or anything quite like that. Um, it, it was it was more like a boot camp than than, than a. Um, um, we we started normally at eight o'clock in the morning. Um, we'd have dinner at eight o'clock at night, and then have lectures on into the evening, by by some of the fantastic um, people who have written the catalogue essays um, for the for the exhibition. So, an incredible opportunity to hear geologists, um, uh, architectural historians. Um, Architects talking about um, this landscape in ways that we wouldn't normally have access to, um, and so the the, the experience was um, extraordinarily fascinating and collegiate. Um, you know, it, it was sort of like a mini university, uh, the university in the best sense, where all disciplines interact with each other and new knowledge comes about as a consequence of that. So um, it was an incredible experience. The other artists were fabulous, um, and. Um, there's always a sense of respect for differences of opinion and um, there are I think a number of quite different um, perspectives and views on the western districts and political views on the districts um, embedded in this show and um, it was really exciting to see the healthy discourse um, that, that the artists were able to enter into and the art enables so diversity and, and respect for that diversity was, was part of it um, and yeah it's a beautiful place you know go there it's, it's, it's a really stunning... Just extending that, can you talk about um, the idea of the camp in relation to, to research and artistic practice? Yeah, thanks. Um, the, um, we all were asked to produce an idea before we went on the camp, um, and that was how we were selected. Um, but I would have thought... Um, all of us had our ideas shifted by the experience of going and and I think that that would be a reason for doing the camp alone that that um, it takes you beyond your previous limits and expectations and knowledge i mean I, I talked about this at the very beginning, sort of shifting my practice in a new way, making me making me think actually about time in video in, in a way i 'd never thought about it before um, and um, so I think, you know, one, one of the very wonderful experiences was that, you know, artists can do what they do, 
But to do research as an artist, you have to change and learn more and do what you couldn't do previously. And, and having an environment and parameters where that's possible, where that's enabled, is a very rare thing. And, and for me, at least, you know, the camp was a very intense, I suppose, laboratory-like experience where that was made possible. Um, and I'm, I'm really grateful for that. Um, um, you know, I, I, I learned things every day. I, I saw things in ways I hadn't seen them before. Um, the camp didn't... I didn't make the work during the camp. I had to go back, and I think that's the case for many of the artists. But it, but it was that shift in thinking that it enabled that was very special. Um, just a general question about whether you've been working in digital for a long time, and um, I, I'm familiar with your previous works that, that were shown recently. Um, so, yeah, just interested in what kind of work you've done before and how it's evolved to digital now. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I, um, I graduated from the Royal College of Art in Sculpture, um, and it's an unusual master's where you actually graduate in a discipline, a specific discipline, not in fine art, but in, in sculpture. And I, I was trained, if you like, working with found object sculpture. Um, for me, it's been a relatively small step sideways from working with found objects to working often with found footage. Um, this isn't actually found. Um, I've gone out there and photographed it myself. Um, but, I mean, I was, I was inspired certainly by um, artists like Von Gerard and, and sort of see the imagery as found, <laughs> if not these actual images. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I've been working... I mean, the, the, other side of, the other side of that answer is that um, as a sculptor, I was very interested in um, when you make a sculpture, why, why do you bring something new into the world? The world is already so extraordinary and full of amazing things. Why does it need new things? Um, and so, I, I, in a sense, I undertook fieldwork into the world. And um, I'm not the first artist to do this. Uh, Gerhard Richter's Atlas or Thomas Roof's JPEG series would be good examples of this as well. But, but I saw I wanted to explore what the world was before I brought things into it. And I found that the world is increasingly digital, uh, or at least visual culture is increasingly digital. And so I felt I had to work with that medium to understand contemporary visual culture better. Um, Um, Thank you very much, Kit. Can we please thank him for his talk today?